This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta and this is The Pulse. As COVID-19 spreads across Canada, governments are rolling out responses. However, people with disabilities are being forgotten within public policy. We hear advice about flattening the curve and social distancing to curtail the spread of COVID-19. For thousands of Canadians living with intellectual disabilities as well as their families and communities, the absence of tailored communications and solutions can make the difference between life and death, especially during a public health emergency. By considering the needs of this community, we can ensure that public health directives are followed. People with disabilities cannot be an afterthought. The time to act is now. Today we discuss the need for heightened consideration of people with intellectual disabilities during COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Joyita Gupta. I'm the host of the program. And as with previous editions of The Pulse, we are all working from home. That is myself, as well as our technical producer, Sam and Andrika, all producing the show from different parts of the city of Toronto. This show is pre-recorded before the air date. If you hear some construction in the background, I apologize in advance for any noise or disruption that you might hear during the broadcast. Let me start out today by saying that I owe, and I think most Canadians owe a debt of gratitude to all the service staff that are keeping things going at this difficult time. I'm talking about the janitors and the sanitation workers, the retail clerks and the grocery store checkout workers. I'm talking about our doctors and nurses and paramedics. To each and every one of you, thank you. Your work is valuable. We appreciate everything that you're doing, and we will not forget your contribution when the crisis is over. I want to remind you that the homepage for Accessible Media Incorporated, where you can get a collection, an up-to-date collection of all of our coverage around COVID-19, delivered to you from the perspective of people with disabilities, which is a perspective that is often overlooked. So today we're going to start to zero in really on the experiences of people with disabilities during COVID-19. My guest today is Carla Vershoor, the Executive Director of Inclusion BC, and she joins us, of course, from beautiful British Columbia. Hello and welcome to The Pulse. Good morning and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Carla. Let me start by asking you, what is Inclusion BC? So Inclusion BC is a provincial advocacy organization, um, and you'll see similar versions of us around the province. So Inclusion BC is a provincial hub for the Canadian Association for Community Living, which then intersects with Inclusion into Americana, Inclusion International. So we're really the BC hub from a grassroots to global social movement, um, supporting people with intellectual disabilities and their families. We're talking about COVID-19 and the public health response. You've sounded the alarm that people with intellectual disabilities aren't being taken into the uh, into uh, into account or into consideration so let me ask you did anyone from any level of government reach out to you to consult about this very important issue um no but i have to be very clear i didn't wait for that either um i think that 
um, when we started receiving the calls from people and their families and watching the media ourselves, um, we were hearing the Prime Minister uh, cautioning everybody to stay home and stay safe. And here in our province, we were still asking people to get on our handy dart and our public transit systems to go to day services where people were congregating in large numbers. The two weren't really jiving. And we raised that flag very early on because we know the complexity of what it means to support some people in home-based environments and that we needed to get ahead of that. And for every day that we waited to do that, we were putting people's lives at risk. So I think for me that it started to really percolate in the last few weeks, but just kind of came to a head on Monday. Um, just the contrast in the way that we were talking about some groups of people versus others. You and me both, I mean, in the last couple of days, it's really felt like this is becoming a major catastrophe, but I don't want to catastrophize now. Uh, You know, you mentioned that you're very familiar with some of the challenges faced by this community, but most of us may not be. So give us an idea of, let's just call it an ordinary day, and what some of the barriers to full participation might be for this community. So I, um, I guess I'll back up a little bit to just share where I'm drawing this information from. So Inclusion BC, although we do work at systems levels, we also have frontline advocates that support about 650 families of people themselves throughout the year to really get access to what many of us perceive as basic services or basic or getting our basic needs met. So. Um, There are particular pain points that we were aware of prior to this crisis that now have just been absolutely magnified by it. So um, when we look at the the history of people with intellectual disabilities and their families and the the era of deinstitutionalization, so people left these large congregate institutions and, and moved to community, but there was never really a strong housing strategy. So we see many, many people living um, into their senior years with their aging parents. So we have 60, 70-year-olds supporting 50, 60-year-olds throughout the province. And we've known this has been a crisis for, for, for a, a long time, but now this just absolutely magnifies vulnerability on top of vulnerability in those situations. On the other end of the continuum, we have very young families that have medically um, f- complex and fragile ch- children in their home that on a daily basis are struggling to get appropriate nurses, nursing supports and medical supplies to keep their children safe. Um, you know, this again, we know that the people with intellectual disabilities experience about a 75% unemployment rate um, and a very limited income assistance program to support them. So we're not only looking at poverty, we're often needing to look at the depth of poverty for people right now. Um, and I guess the last the last piece that I would just really like to highlight is the strain and the complexity of our school closures and our community support centers as they close. Um, they are the conduit to community support for lots of people. So we're really hopeful that even though they don't come back in their full um, services, that they can continue to be that lifeline for families um, that have children that aren't able to access those day-to-day services. The voice that you're listening to right now is Carla Vershore, who is the executive director of Inclusion BC. And we're talking about the need to consider people with intellectual disabilities 
in planning a response to COVID-19, Carla, you made some really excellent points, and I'm going to come back to many of them over the course of our conversation. But you've also said previously that this is something that speaks to our values as Canadians, that no one should be left behind during a crisis. Can you expand on that for us? Well, um, I think that for anyone who has a family member with an intellectual disability or an intellectual disability themselves, or any disability for that matter, have an underlying fear when we start talking about triage, what that means for them. When we start thinking about um, who who lives and who dies, that does a typically farewell historically for people with disabilities. And as much as I don't want to to put too much fear out into the world during these times. Those are still really strong considerations. Um, and we see self-advocacy groups and groups of advocates that are starting to put out those public service announcements themselves, demanding for fair treatment within our medical system. Now, if we knew that that was going to be automatic, we would have no need for those types of things, right? But when you, when you live in a country that is looking to reform medical insistence in dying and removing foreseeable death clause and replacing it with disability, these are times where these are really valid questions and really valid concerns for people. And we need to be really clear that the expectation is that all life is valued equally. Exactly. Now, let me ask you a little bit about language, Carla, because that would be a big consideration to make sure that announcements and information is made available in a plain lang- in plain language. Is that happening at the moment? And if so, I mean, do, do we have plain language instructions about washing your hands? That's a big piece around preventing the spread of COVID-19. Yeah, and I mean, this is something that was a, a, a consistent barrier prior to this crisis as well was the access to easy English and plain language and adapted language. And we've always advocated to start from a place of easy, clear, accessible language rather than relying on people to translate it and interpret it um, because a lot can get lost in those translations and interpretations. So is there clear language out there? Yes, but it's being developed by service and community. We're not necessarily hearing that or being provided that by our government agencies. Now, with that said, there has been you know, enormous shifts here in British Columbia on um, being clear and using um, more explicit language. Now, is that to support the population of people with disabilities or is it just to be super clear to the general population? I don't know what the catalyst for it was, but I'm really happy to see that shift to more clear, mm-hmm. precise instruction and language. Exactly. You mentioned in the first half of our conversation that uh, there are a lot of school closures, uh, not just in BC, but across the country. And also a lot of nonprofits are either providing no services or reduced services. What's been the impact on this particular community, people with intellectual disabilities, as well as their families and caregivers? I think that um, there's kind of two different considerations there. And the first is that in British Columbia, we're still on our spring break. So for the first you know, week of um, our government's request to stay home and say stay, most people had already developed a plan to support their children through the spring break. Um, however, when the child center started to close and people started to be going back into the family home exclusively, um, and around, my gosh, I would say 90% of the people we support, caregiver burnout is a very um, strong contributing factor to crisis. So as we're, put, we're you know, 
supporting children 24-7 in the family home, uh, we need to be very thoughtful of the families and their their independent situations um, to keep them supported and keep them safe. You know, for some families, that may mean bringing in positive behavioral support at a much greater rate than we would have. For others, it means being proactive with, you know, personal protective equipment for their staff. For others, it may be supplementing both parents to be able to stay home and trade off um, parenting and caregiving duties. Like for every situation and for every family, the, the, the response needs to be a little bit different. And I think the important piece is there to keep connected to families and kind of abandon this notion of job roles and everyone kind of do that part where they can at a very community-centric, um, in a community-centric way. Like we can, the government can ask us what to do, but it's community that's going to have to support one another and support vulnerable families through the situation. Um, in to supporting adults, um, you know, there's such a range of where people are living. Some people are living in group homes with three or four roommates. Other people are living in home share situations where it may be themselves and another family or themselves and, and, and a roommate type scenario. But the, the majority of people are still living in their family homes. So as people are coming in and out of those homes, it's so essential that we stay within our family units and that we stay safe and secure and we abide by the social distancing, the physical distancing to keep one another safe. And I think that's been probably the number one source of frustration that I'm hearing from adults with developmental disabilities is they're trying to do everything they can to keep themselves safe. They need their neighbors and their community partners to do the same. Um, both of these scenarios are incredibly dependent on the role of a community support worker. So as you're thinking groceries, which I absolutely am too, I, I have to say a huge thank you for those community support workers that are coming out each day to make sure that the people that they care about, the people that they support have access to food, programming, um, social exchange, um, all those things that they need to be safe and supported. Big, Let's big, talk big about the community support worker for a moment, Carla, if you don't mind. I'm going to interrupt you because no, I, I don't would've... want to lose out on the opportunity to ask you what needs to happen to support a community support worker to remain safe on the job, uh, but also so that the needs of this community can still be met in an effective fashion. Absolutely. And this is kind of where our conversations with government began early last week is extending the flexibility and financial support to those local agencies um, to be able to deploy and support their staff in the most flexible, again, community-centric way to meet the needs of the people they support because they are those who know them best outside of their family. Um, So making sure that they have the flexibility to keep um, a group of staff members in social isolation and paid so as other people are leaving and self-quarantine that you have an infusion of safe, healthy, trained employees to come in. Like there's, you, I'm hearing these pockets of best practices percolating around the province. So being able to, to share those um, with one another as agencies and have the full support of our government bodies to allow them to do what they need to do, I think is absolutely essential. I'm speaking to Carla Wershore, the Executive Director of Inclusion BC. Our topic of conversation is the need for heightened consideration of the unique needs of people with intellectual disabilities. 
Carla, one of the recommendations that Inclusion BC put out that I was intrigued by was the creation of a specialized telephone service or hotline where people can ask questions. If something like this doesn't already exist, how complicated or straightforward would it be to set it up? And really, wouldn't something like this be better nationally rather than provincially? Um, perhaps, but I, I think that the um, the way that services are delivered across the country vary. Um, so in some ways, it could be regionally based, it could be provincial based, but I guess it could be nationally based. But this was a really a strong, um, you know, if we weren't going to customize and make our public information fully accessible, and this is something I would typically normally not endorse, like a special line for people, but if we're unable to adjust in this time of crisis to make our information fully accessible to people with a variety of communication needs or accommodations that they have, then do something different. Like, um, you know, it, it wouldn't, like I said, it wouldn't be our preferred option, but in a time of crisis, people absolutely need to have access to curated, accurate information that meets their, their accommodation around communication. Let me shift gears a few, if you don't mind. A few days ago, the federal government, that is to say Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau, rolled out a very significant aid package for Canadians. They said that we would get up to $27 billion uh, in aid directly to the Canadian public to assist with the COVID-19 crisis. Is there any money in there that's earmarked to support this community? Was there anything in that announcement that you were excited by? Um, I mean, there were certainly things within that announcement that may support the family unit, but not explicitly for me. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't find explicit ways in which that would help the group of people that we typically support, right? Um, and you'll, you would have seen in our release as well is that we want, in fact, all money freely flowing within our provincial assistance programs. Like, we don't want the working poor that are part of the persons with disability benefits having their checks held because they potentially may be eligible for EI, um, that we needed to lift all administrative flags or signals. Um, and our minister, um, Minister Shane Simpson, did recently announce that there'd be a crisis supplement for income assistance, but how that will be distributed and what that looks like is still to be determined. Mm-hmm. Um, but with respect to the, the Prime Minister's announcement, um, it has not yet been translated down how that will really benefit people and their families, the people and the families that we support. Right. And you made this really excellent point about social assistance and that there are often many administrative barriers. If there was a person with an intellectual disability or a family member who was uh, helping them out with their affairs, is there someone they could potentially even talk to at this time when everybody, including government workers, are being encouraged to work remotely? Well, I would, I would like to think so, but at this point, that hasn't been our experience, or at least the experience of the families and the people that we've been talking to. It does seem that there's been some lag in some of the information we're hearing um, provincially down into the regional offices. Um, so we would really like to see that clarity cleared up quickly, like in terms of information flow from provincial uh, ministerial levels down to the regional offices that really do give that, again, clear direction to get the money 
into the the households of people with disabilities as it's intended to. You know, I'll be honest with you. When I realized I was going to be speaking to you, um, I had two things that came to mind. One, that I hadn't really thought about it before. And two, now that I have spoken to you and ever since I realized I was going to be doing this interview, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it because I would hate to think that someone vulnerable fell through the cracks because of uh, policy oversight. So I'm sure a lot of us are wondering the same thing here. How can Canadians support the work that you're doing? Do you need us to tweet our local MPPs or sign a petition? How can people get involved? Well, I think it begins at the most, um, again, you'll see this trend in my thinking at the community level, reach out to those local service organizations and family groups to see what they support locally. But definitely any um, any mirroring of messaging, like of not leaving people with disabilities behind in your municipal planning, your provincial planning or your federal planning would also be very appreciative. Um, you know, encouraging our provincial and, and municipal governments to work with community leaders in the inclusion movement to think about these things. Like we all respond with the information we know and the filters that we have. So I respect that sometimes this is just not front of mind for people. But if we are truly going to respond as a country, we need to include all of our citizens. And that includes people with intellectual disabilities and their families. And I would say it is a group that is consistently left behind and out of these conversations. Well, we're trying to fix that today. And I want to end Mm -hmm. off with what I hope is a positive question. Many people have pointed out that things will never go back to being the same after COVID-19, that this has fundamentally changed everybody's lives. Carla, you've, you've been involved with this community and worked in this field for, I think, a long time. Do you think once the crisis passes, there will be things that will be put in place as a result that will overall improve conditions for people with intellectual disabilities? Are you at all hopeful? I am hopeful. I'm incredibly hopeful. Um, I see I, I see everyone that I'm speaking to doing the best that they can in the realms of influence that they're in. And I think much of what we have, say, have said has also been kind of perceived as anecdotal. Or, um, and I think it gives, you know, now that we see it and we see the impacts of the way we've designed things um, for people with disabilities, I think there will be a heightened awareness. And I do think we'll have a shift towards um, creating systems that do not rely on congregated supports, but more of that individual um, specialized supports that people need to thrive and be their best selves. So I, I am hopeful. I mean, it's a terrible way to go about it, but I am hopeful. Yes. Well, on that positive note, we should leave it. Carla, thank you very much for taking some time oh, to speak to us. As I said, you. it's an underreported issue, and I'm so glad you could talk to us. Thank you so much. That was Carla Wershore, the Executive Director of Inclusion BC, and we spoke today about an issue that I don't think a lot of people are talking about, which is the need to include, and I will go one step further and say to keep in front and center of mind, the unique challenges faced by people with intellectual disabilities I hope that this conversation in particular has helped to create greater awareness of the unique challenges faced by people with intellectual disabilities. I am also hopeful that 
as Canada rallies itself and we create responses to slow the spread of COVID-19, we are able to make sure that we implement responses in such a way that no one is left behind. My friend Michelle McQuig, who you can frequently hear on Now with Dave Brown, wrote an excellent article covering the, the fact that people with disabilities are yet again being left behind. I hope you have a chance to check out her work. But as I wrap up my remarks for today, I am reminded of the adage that we are only as strong as the weakest link in our chain. So at this point, ensuring that people with intellectual disabilities can follow public health directives isn't just beneficial to them, but by the principle of what is in the public interest and this notion that social isolation and social distancing can prevent spread, ensuring that communication and solutions are tailor-made for this community is also in large part fulfilling the requirements of our public health directive. So it's good for all of us. With all of that said, I hope you go back and listen to this interview with Carla. We're sure, I know I have a lot to think about after our conversation. It is available to you as a podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. You have a lot of time to peel through past episodes. Please remind your friends, family, and acquaintances to check us out as well. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. Also, please head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse. I'll have a few additional thoughts once I've had a chance to sit with this interview and process a little bit. I'd like to thank Carla Vershore for being our guest today. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanerol. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is the supervisor of AMI-audio technical. All of these people and many more working behind the scenes to bring you this program remotely. We would love to get your feedback on our content. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's one 866 509-4545 and let us know if we have your permission to play the audio on the program. You can also find us on Twitter at AMI Audio. Use the hashtag PulseAMI and of course write us an email if you like feedback at AMI.ca Thank you very much everybody stay safe and everyone have a wonderful rest of your day. We'll be back with more coverage here on the Pulse on AMI Audio. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.